take a beloved book franchise, an Emmy-winning actress, release the film on a light box office weekend, and you have the formula for a number one movie. Unless people don't go to see it, or even like it that much. But does that make it a bad movie? We're going bounty hunting for positives as we prove to you that 2012's one for the money, it's not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And what we're looking at today is what was hopefully going to be the beginning of a lucrative film franchise, but just happened to have a bit of a failure to launch. And joining me as we take a look at 2012's One for the Money, my wife Carrie is back behind the mic. Carrie, how are you doing today? I am doing great, and I'm so happy to be back. Now, when we were discussing movies to uh, to pick up for this episode, we talked about One for the Money. And first of all, you didn't even know that this movie existed. Not a clue, sad to say. And which I find kind of funny because you yourself are a huge fan of the Janet Ivanovich book series that this movie is based on. So before we even get into talking about the movie itself, what is it about the Janet Ivanovich Stephanie Plum series that you like so much? Oh my God, they are so well-written. They're funny. They're, you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. They're quick reads, um, absolute page turners. You can't put the book down. Um, I can't say enough about this book series. And yes, sad to say that I was unaware that this movie even existed, even though I have every single book in the Stephanie Plum series and for the record that is 28 books Mm -hmm. and counting all 28 she actually just put out number 28 fairly recently it was the beginning of november that it was released um but there comes the problem we know the saying the book is always better than the movie yes so i have to ask but you know before we even get into talking about how good the movie actually was were you nervous about sitting down and watching a movie based on a series, a book series that you love so much? I was frightened. I I went into it, I went into it telling myself, you know what? I'm going to put all expectations behind me. I'm going to put all of my preconceived notions of who should play which character. My, I had I had the movie already cast out, or sorry, I had the book um, and the character of Stephanie Plum already cast in my mind. And yes, I, I was I was nervous. I was um, hesitant. Um, but as soon as I heard the movie existed, I had to watch it, and I am so happy that I did. Okay, so we're going to get ready to get into the breakdown of this film, but before we do, it's time. So, Carrie, you actually have the book in your hand, the Janet Ivanovich One for the Money book in your hand. So, let's take the back of the book and trailerize it. Trenton native Stephanie Plum is out of work, out of money, and her car's in repo hell. So, who does a hardly working girl turn to when the going gets tough? Meet Cousin Vinny, Bill Bondsman 
Stephanie figures it's nice work if you can get it. Her first assignment, nail Joe Morelli, a former vice cop on the run from a charge of murder one. There's also a cranky ex-prize fighter dog in her and a nasty habit she has of leaping first and looking later. If Stephanie doesn't wise up fast, the first dead body she sees could be her own. Nice. So now there's a lot to unpack from this story. And I, admittedly, I have not read the book. I, you know, I, I'm very happy to, to help you get the collection, the full collection, all 28 books of this. But it's one of those things where you sit there, take a look and go, okay, this seems like a fun, a fun series. So something that, that people can kind of get involved in. So let me ask you. Was this a fair representation of what they can expect? It was. It was so true to the characterization, the way the the, the narrative, the way that the movie um, starts out. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect for... Um, a, a, any Janet Ivanovich fan out there and if there are many um, you know my hat's off to you and and it definitely um, if you haven't seen the movie you need to watch one for the money and I'm still waiting for the other 27 movies to be made which I, I highly doubt is going to happen not judging by the ratings that it got and the fact that you know it didn't quite do as well as the box office as I'm sure they'd hope. But let's get into who's in this. In the main role of Stephanie Plum is Katherine Heigl. And most people will, you know, will recognize her from Grey's Anatomy and Knocked Up, you know, and, and a lot of other different movies out there. She's also an executive producer on the film, mainly because it's like, she's in almost every scene of this film. But I have to ask you, because that's always one of those big scary things. You know, when you've got a book, you got a series, you have a character that's been well established, you know, literary wise. And people have that image of like what that who would be that perfect person to play that role. So I have to ask you going into this, was Katherine Heigl your envisionment of who Stephanie Plum should be? That's a great question. I would say she wasn't on my radar. Um, she was definitely not the vision of of the the casted character um, when I was reading the book. However, watching the movie, um, she warmed up into that character of Stephanie Plum. It's almost like, she starts out very rigid and kind of almost, I don't know, it's its almost like halfway through the movie, she just completely embodies Stephanie Plum. And I mean, she was right on the money. Like she was perfect in this role. You also have, you, know, you mentioned uh, the character of Joseph Morelli in the uh, in the trailer rise. You had Jason O'Mara, and the while the face may not be that familiar, the voice is very familiar because Jason O'Mara has done what I thought may have been impossible. Bold statement, to me, the best Batman is Kevin Conroy. Now, if you don't know who Kevin Conroy is, just go watch Batman the Animated Series. Kevin Conroy was able to kind of have the perfect tenor of voice for Batman. Jason O'Mara 
who has kind of taken over the Batman role as far as animated goes, has done equally as good a job as Kevin Conroy. I would never say better because Kevin Conroy is damn good. Jason O'Mara is also damn good as Batman. And, you know, I'm going to admit right now, because, you know, I'm familiar with his Batman work, it was really hard not to want to picture him in a Batman mask, you know, cowl and cape as he's running around in this because I could hear the voice. That amazes me. And I literally have to go and watch the animated Batman series that you're talking about because I just, I can't picture it. I cannot picture Joe Morelli being Batman. I, I want to put it out there that uh, there are about three of the animated movies that he has done, including Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, uh, Batman Bad Blood, and there was another one. The three of them have a 100% tomato meter. Wow. That is how good, not just those, those DC animated films are. Anyone, anyone complaining about DC movies, go watch the animated movies. They are infinitely better than anything the dceu is putting out but yeah 100 percent tomato meter for those animated films and jason o'mara is a solid batman you also have daniel sunjata and i'm i apologize if i butcher your name daniel daniel sunjata as ranger now if that doesn't seem familiar most people will recognize him from uh, graceland rescue me and the Devil Wears Prada. So there's another book that was, you know, kind of transferred over to to movie lore. You also had Debbie Reynolds in her last ever feature film as the grandmother. John Leguizamo as, you know, bad guy, which I think is what John Leguizamo plays in almost every movie. You had Fisher Stevens. Most people will recognize him lately from Succession. And Sherry Shepard. Uh, she was the one of the the prostitute that was constantly giving uh, tips to uh, to Stephanie Plum. I know her best from Thirty Rock as Tracy Jordan's wife in that show. Oh, the the look on Mind your face, blown! And oh my god, I did not place she, that. She was great in that, and she's phenomenal in this. It was directed by Julianne Robinson, um, who is primarily a television director. You know, you know, one of those things we find ourselves saying a lot on the show. This would be the last film she would ever direct that would be released in theaters. Um, but you know, her TV directing credits are huge she's done episodes for bridgerton uh brooklyn 99 orange is the new black she has got some major show directorial credits to her resume so the movie itself clearly was in good hands until it got to the box office this movie one for the money had a 42 million dollar production budget it only took in $26 million domestically and $36 million worldwide. So it's a money loser. Even when you take in the worldwide budget, it did not make its money back. And I wonder, and I, I, I have to put it out there because we talked about this at the beginning of the show, that you, a Janet Ivanovich fan, reader, collector, did not know this movie existed. I am so sorry. I honestly feel like I'm being, you know, 
punished right now. And and um, they could have made the thirty six million and ten dollars, but the, you didn't know about it. <laughs> the finger wag is. I have to ask about the like publicity. You had mentioned earlier um, that uh, Catherine a, Heigl and Janet Ivanovich did a, a promo tour. Yeah. Promo tour. But I'm, maybe I was in a coma in 2012. I, I don't know. I don't remember. Honestly, I had I had no idea. You know what the funny thing Not is, though? If you take a look at the box office from that weekend, you know, I, we mentioned at the very, very top of the show that it was a light box office weekend. And it was ridiculously light. You know, the top grossing movie of that weekend which was also debuted, was The Grey, also known as Liam Neeson Stuck in the Woods. That's basically all that movie is. It it grossed $19.665 million on that opening weekend. One for the money opened in third. You know, um, right behind Underworld Awakening, which was in its second week. So you had a Liam Neeson in 2012 debuting movie where he looked, it looks like he's about to go one on one with a wolf in the woods. And like, who doesn't want to go see that? Um, Underworld Awakening. So you have a franchise there and then one for the money. I mean, but the rest of the rest of the box office top 10 that week, when as you go down, you know, by the way, that opening weekend for one for the money. Eleven and a half million dollars. So when you take a look at the fact that you know nineteen and a half million is number one, Underworld Awakening number two is just over twelve million, and then you got eleven and a half million for one for the money. Very respectable, but it was out of the top ten in in its third week. So it dropped and dropped fast. But the rest of the top ten, you know, you got Red Tails, Man on a Ledge, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Contraband, The Descendants. Beauty and the Beast 3D. Like, the fact that a Disney movie that had been re-released, you know, in what was arguably its 1,055th week of box office, um, still was able to crack the top 10. That just tells you it was a really light week. So, whether it was between major releases or whatever, it was just a lull in the, you know, in the box office. This is January. January 27th. And you know what? That kind of makes sense a little bit. Because if you think about it, a lot of movies are pumped out for the holidays, right? You get a lot of Christmas releases. There's a lot of push to get. And then there's a lull. January, no one goes to the movies. And then it kind of picks up again in February. So it's kind of a crappy release time when you take a look at it as far as, you know, the calendar goes. So maybe that also kind of led to the fact that like, you know, we're still all recovering from the Turkey that we ate at Christmas. You know, we're just starting to do the belt back up. You know, it might, that, 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 that Turkey fatigue is starting to wear off. But by the time you get to Valentine's day, which is another major release time for movies, you know, this movie's out. Like it's it's out of the top ten. It's 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 an afterthought at this point. So, you know, if anything, the studio release timing of the film did it no favors whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, all I can say is I would be curious what movies came out that December that were maybe still in the theater. You're looking at 2011. We would have to take a look back a little bit, but 
you know, regardless of, I mean, the fact that Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close was in its sixth week in the box office from that, as far as the top 10 goes, everything else, I mean, and and The Descendants was, uh, was in its 11th week, but everything else, you know, was either in its first or second week. So the deck had been cleared from Christmas, you know, so it's not even like you had something like, the Force Awakens, which get which gets released in you know December and then carries on till whenever, right? The deck had been cleared, so clearly the 2011 Christmas season wasn't a huge release slate, or if it was, it was something that was there and maybe kind of bombed out. Who knows? Um, but part of the problem may have been though is that this movie came out in 2012. The book came out in. 1994 exactly so here you have you know eight years no more Mm -hmm. that's more like because i can't do math (laughs) 18 years between book and movie right that's a long long time to go and yes admittedly sometimes you know things kind of get a second life and i get that but the rights for this movie were bought in 1997. Oh. Columbia and TriStar had the rights in 1997, and then they, those rights were acquired by Lionsgate in 2010. This movie was in developmental hell. Why is that? It's, I, I, I honestly don't know. They had the rights, and that's something that movies, movie companies will do. They see a franchise or they see a property that they're like, you know what, we, if we bought this and we made a movie out of it, we could easily, um, we can make a movie. We're fine. We're good. Um, but then they get it, and they stall on it, and they sit on it, and they don't want to do anything until they think that, okay, maybe we can do something with it. And then, yeah, then, you know, if they don't afterwards, then, yeah. They'll sell it off or whatever, or they'll hold on to it and they'll push something out just to kind of keep the rights. But yeah, no, that's a, that is a long time for developmental hell to the point of like even Janet Vanovich herself, there was a quote that she had said in an interview saying they're sitting on a multi-million dollar movie franchise and here we are still waiting, but that's, is what it is kind of thing. And I'm obviously paraphrasing the quote, but you know, Ivanovich knew, like, the rights had been acquired. So I'm sure it was a relief to see the movie out there, and she seemed very happy with it. But, you know, it's like the anti-Clive Cussler in this case, because, you know, any time a Clive Cussler movie comes out, Clive Cussler himself is poo-pooing over the entire movie. You know, that can't do it well. Here we have Janet Ivanovich, who's very happy with the movie, and yet it still didn't help. You know, it's interesting, as um, you were mentioning that, I popped over to Fantastic Fiction and I was curious um, which book in the series she was on by 2012. So in 2012, Notorious 19 was released. There were two releases, um, Smoke in 17 and Explosive 18 in 2011. So to put that into perspective... You're 18 books in. Fans of the book series are 18 books in and they're only getting around to the first of the story so really you know in the 18 years you've pretty much forgotten the first book the the premise of the plot of the first book Mm -hmm. and and i can't say enough as as a fan 
of the book series, how cool it is to have read up to, I think I'm literally sitting at 23 that I've read. Mm -hmm. Okay, 22, 22 or 23 was where I left off. There, a lot has happened to Stephanie Plum and in her life by that point. Um, so to double back to where it all began in One for the Money and to to see kind of that dynamic of where she is in her life, recently divorced, um, she's hunting down Joe Morelli, who fans of the series, I don't know, am I allowed to do spoilers? I'm going to just break all the rules we, today. We are almost 10 years since the movie has come out. So if you, right. haven't, if you haven't watched the, the movie yet, you know what you can do with yourself. But if you haven't watched the movie yet, go watch the movie and then continue to do whatever to yourself. Um, <laughs> so, but what I was saying is uh, the dynamic and the relationship between Stephanie and Joe has come a long way since this movie. So watch the movie and then pick up the the other 27 books and read them all because it's really fantastic. Of which I'm sure will be up to 30 books by the time you get through all 28. <laughs> um, I'm working on it. But to give you an idea of just how good this franchise could be, the book itself, One for the Money, won the 1995 Dillis Award uh, presented by the Independent Mystery Booksellers Association. This movie got some accolades too. Not the kind you want, but it got some notice because Katherine Heigl was nominated for Worst Actress at the Razzies that year. She didn't win. For this movie. For this movie. For this role. She did not win, I but am, she was nominated for Worst Actress. I am angry by that. She lost to Kristen Stewart, who was nominated for both Snow White and the Huntsman and Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm sorry, you can't say part two and not follow it up with Electric Boogaloo. If you don't, you've you've missed the opportunity. But, and I think this might even be worse than a Razzie nomination. Oh, bring it. The Alliance of Women Film Journalists at the 2012 EDA Awards. Catherine Heigl co-won the award for i'm going to put in air quotes for all of you who are yeah. not listening oh he's got the finger quotations the finger quotes are out she co-won the award for and this is apparently an award actress most in need of a new agent wow yeah that's harsh man it is she co-won that award with reese witherspoon who that year also had the movie This Means War come out. Now, I haven't watched This Means War, but, you know, if she's... If that's the kind of accolades that they are getting from these movies, uh, that just tells you everything you need to know. Um, but that leads us to the Rotten Tomatoes score. And I'm going to start with the audience score on this one. Because the audience score is about 42%. Which, you know, it's not bad. You know, it's not horrible. What's horrible is the tomato meter score. Two. Two percent, Two percent tomato meter or tomatometer. All I can say is there's a lot of film critics out there who have never picked up a book. Because, because honestly, if, okay, as a huge fan of the book series... If you were to just go into watching this movie without that previous 
love for the character and, By no, and of knowing nothing about the and book knowing series whatsoever. nothing yeah so, knowing nothing about so the character. if you're me <laughs> okay so then i have to ask you what did you think oh we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit okay but, but right now we're talking about the tomato meter and i i do have to say if we're looking for positives this wasn't Catherine heigl's worst tomato meter movie it gets worse. It gets worse. Than 2%. It gets the big donut worse. Ooh. Because in 2006, Katherine Heigl was in a movie called Caffeine with Manu Suvari and Brecken Meyer. And that got the big old donut of 0% on the tomato meter. So it's not caffeine, you know? So there's positive there. Um, I want to point out too. And this might have actually led to why it got a low tomato meter and why it didn't do so well at the box office. Because 2012 was the last year of Jersey Shore on MTV. And Jersey Shore, for any, for anyone who has never watched Jersey Shore, you are the lucky chosen few. Um, but for anyone who does, they know that, that Jersey Shore is not exactly the best representation of people in New Jersey. And this series, this movie, is based in New Jersey. And there is a whole lot of Jersey accent in this film. So I wonder, I, I, I do have to, to question if... There was some Jersey Shore fatigue that led into two, you know, one for the money. And people hear the Jersey accent and go, oh, where's Snooki and Wow? It's quite possible. And then one of the other things, too, and I, and I have to bring this up. Katherine Heigl, for as good an actress as she is, you know, she's got an Emmy to prove it. Hasn't exactly had the best work with reputation. Watchmojo.com had her as number six on their list of top 10 difficult actors to work with. Part of that is the fact that, you know, she kind of got called out for um, dissing the script of Knocked Up, even though she was in it, and, you know, making some comments that made the, I guess, the writers and the producers of Grey's Anatomy kind of sit there and go, whoa, hold your horses there, Catherine. So, you know, I mean, who knows? Again, full disclaimer, we don't know jack of what goes on behind the scenes of the movies. But, you know, if you take a look at, like, because Jersey Shore by 2012 is just, like, an annoying joke, you know. And, you know, you've got all this, you know, I don't know I'm supposed to say bad press, but, you know, not exactly, you know, shining light of, uh, or, or, or beacon of niceness. You know, Catherine Heigl wasn't exactly America's sweetheart in 2012. So I wonder how much all that plays into the tomato meter. So when the critics go into a film, their guns are already loaded and they're ready to just, you know, you know, fire away some just nasty hyperbole on this. I don't know. I mean, if you were to just watch the movie again without the prior, you know, knowledge from from the book series, um, it's not a bad movie but it's it's not it's kind of almost like an hbo made for tv series turned into you know a blockbuster released in theaters um so production wise i can kind of see where you know yeah i mean you could watch it and be like 
really what what is this and i think too a lot of it um as as a fan of the book series it's like yes the book is better than the movie i think there's a lot of backstory or a lot of scenes where they tried to fill in the backstory or provide the information that's needed but i think they kind of faltered with that there were a few scenes where it's kind of like what is like who is this character and what is happening and why is this important to the plot line because it wasn't flushed out well enough in the Mm -hmm. two hours actually an hour 35 yeah it's not a long movie by any stretch of the imagination it is not and i really feel like either it needed to be a two-hour movie or they needed to almost add some more to the scripting. Um, I do love how they had, you know, the, the narration mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, helped it along um, in certain parts, uh, mostly at the beginning. Almost, almost diary-esque. Right. Kind of. but, but, to you know, to another comparison, you know, you take a look at... Um, I guess it was the the original theatrical release of Blade Runner where you had, you know, Harrison Ford's narration kind of go through it. Obviously, the the director's cut doesn't have that, um, but it kind of helps almost that, you know, speaking of bounty hunters, you know, because Blade Runner is basically that, a bounty hunter, if if you will, um, almost that film noir type feel to it, even though this film doesn't really come across as film noir. But I want to put this out there. And this was one of the things that kind of really sat with me in that you have a character and a series of books and something about this film just said to me, this would be so much better as a series. This would be so much better if maybe not a Netflix, but I mean, like this could be a network television series and do really really well. And the first thing that came to mind as I'm watching this is Karen Cisco. I was going to say I was really going to pull that parallel. Yeah, because you know, Elmore Leonard fans, you know, mm-hmm. speaking of prolific mystery writers, right? Elmore Leonard fans know that the uh, Out of Sight came out and then the character of Karen Cisco was picked up and p- built into a series starring Carla Gugino. And again, Apologies to Carla if I could if I just completely you know must up your name, but that series was so much fun. It was so much fun, and I kind of wish they did more than one season of Karen Cisco because it lent itself well to an episodic kind of case of the week series, and I think Stephanie Plum would not just do well, but thrive in that bounty of the week kind of or even you have a a, an underlying storyline that kind of goes through because there is a lot to this you know not just to this movie but to the you know the back you know the characters and how they're flushed out so being a fan of the series as you are again better as a movie or even better as a series i completely agree i think as a series there's so much more they could do with it, with the backstory, with um, even even the bad guys and the just the quirkiness of the mis 
adventures mm-hmm. of Stephanie Plum um, would be just brilliant okay as so, a series so let's get to the acting here and i think we need to start at the top we need to we, we need to start right at, at number one on the call shoot and katherine heigl i liked her in this i really did um and i think i think i liked her despite the script and the direction because there were times when her you know her stephanie plum felt kind of not ditzy, but, you know, definitely out of her element and definitely a little frenetic. And then there were times when she kind of felt over cocky, right? Cocky or clueless. is It was kind of one or the other. And, and again, maybe this is one of those things where in a series, you can kind of flush that out and see the development. In an hour and a half, you kind of have to rush everything into it. So I think I, I, I enjoyed her despite the script she was dealing with and despite how everything kind of felt rushed an hour and a half. So again, we, we talked a little bit about is Catherine Heigl, your Stephanie Plum. So what made her enjoyable to you as Stephanie Plum? I, I find it fascinating that you would describe her as a mix of ditzy and clueless and cocky, clueless and cocky, because that is the quintessential beauty of Stephanie Plum, that is uh, what's endearing about the character is that she she's a strong, smart woman who finds herself in misadventures and just bad, like if bad luck were a thing, you know, she's she's got it. Like mm-hmm. it's um, and it's not that she's ditzy or clueless it's that she gets put in these situations where you know it's like there's there's really no jump first ask questions later right um i mean i think katherine heigl was perfect as the character um she wasn't you know when i read the book her face or her like she wasn't my first pick. Um, she wasn't who I pictured when I was reading the text. However, to see her portray the character, I, I thought she it, she was right on the money. She was perfect. I, I do have to give her credit for pulling off that wig, though. Yes. Because that, that's a wig. She didn't dye her yeah. hair. That's yeah. a wig. And the hair was perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, kudos to the to the hair department for that. Um Joe Morelli. Jason O'Mara. Again, and I mentioned my whole thing about Batman. And I I think one of the things I had trouble kind of getting over with, or you know, or, or over on this movie, is that directing wise, and this kind of goes to the directing. I didn't know if it was supposed to be a comedy or an action film. And I don't think the movie itself quite knew either. Because there were times when I'm watching Jason O'Mara's Joe Morelli. And, you know, you you get that, you know, for lack of a better term, that, 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 that Agent Booth from Bones kind of feel about him. Right. But then there's other times where I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, my God, it's John C. McGinley who played Dr. Cox in Scrubs. That was the vibe that I was getting off him 
for a lot of the movie and I could and I think that's part of why I I wasn't quite sure whether this was this was supposed to be a comedy or an action or an action comedy kind of thing like the movie itself pace wise direction wise felt like it didn't know what it wanted to be which which is why I had these two different visions of what um, Morelli should have been mm-hmm. and they were kind of very very conflicting you know points of mental reference as I'm watching it but now you know we talked about is Catherine Heigl Stephanie Plum is Jason O'Mara Joe Morelli fascinating there are so many things that I want to say about that in that when I first saw him I was like no no this is he's wrong he's too old he's not what I pictured at all I think maybe I had pictured like a Ben Affleck like younger more chiseled more handsome um so not, so, so not Ben Affleck <laughs> but definitely no I, I he was not my picture of Joe Morelli at all um so, so you wanted Gili era Ben Affleck with the Batfleck body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I think that Jason O'Mara played it really well. It, it, he won me over. He won me over as Joe Morelli. And I can now accept, and I could probably continue to read on the series and, and picture him. Um, as far as the dynamic between the two characters... Um, Stephanie and Joe, okay, complete spoiler alert here. They, they're a couple. They are in the book series. They are very much in love. They touched on it a bit that they had a history, Mm -hmm. um, in high school and. Which is why she's kind of really eager to get this bounty because. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't go so well. And so they have that kind of love, hate they hate to love each other, mm-hmm. and they love to hate each other. And that did play somewhat well. And I'm, I'm it glad played they, well. I'm glad they didn't go full on, but they kind of fall in love afterwards. Yeah. Because, because I know that there were plans to make Two for the Dough mm-hmm. as a movie. And once the box office kind of came in and, you know, the that 2% tomato meter, it's like, yeah, we're not going to do this. Yeah, and that early in the book series, too, mm-hmm. they, they pretty much disliked each other there's other spoilers i can i've got little easter eggs that i can share but i'm gonna hold on to that information Mm -hmm. for right now but um i think that they played it really really well and and as you said i love that they didn't just you know have the very um convenient wrap up at the end where they fall in love no 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 they 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 fought right to the very end of this movie and and that's their dynamic and i love it i just find it funny the fact that your mental image of morelli is ben affleck who played batman and instead they went out and got someone who was a better batman (laughs) in the role (laughs) irony i think so um see now 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 we just need joe morelli to come on screen go because i'm batman (laughs) (laughs) but i definitely found visually especially for the first movie he was he was a bit old i think he 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 was aged he was yeah um for 
And, and and it's interesting, almost even with Katherine Heigl, I found that she was an older version of what I had pictured. I, I always felt Stephanie Plum should be in her 20s. Right. But it, I guess um, timeline wise, she had just gone through a divorce when the first movie, mm-hmm. uh, you know, happened in her timeline. So I guess it kind of works. It's just like as a reader of the series, you kind of, I don't know, get a more youthful feel. Not that Katherine Heigl didn't pull it off. Mm-hmm. She did. Um, so did Jason O'Mara. It's just that. And I think the thing between the two of them, and this is kind of why I had that, you know, that that Agent Booth kind of feel, is that the Bones series worked and worked for years because of, you know, a, you know, first the the romantic tension between Temperance Brennan and and agent booth and then the eventual romance and and the comedy kind of between the rest of the cast as well bones is a phenomenal series and bones works well again another series Mm -hmm. based on a really well-loved mystery book series you see where i'm going with this yeah especially with um especially with the um the various bad guys quote-unquote bad guys that um she's trying to bring in mm-hmm. right the bounties that uh within the book series at as a whole not just this first movie or the right. first book one for the money um there is so much that can be done with just she meets the most off of the wall characters and i think they played it really 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 well with the old guy in her apartment uh, building mm, right. that she had to bring in, and that was probably her fastest, easiest you know, bond ever. That, yeah. that she could have um, she could have uh, have done. Um, <laughs> but again, uh, it was it was really well done. I, I again, this is why I think you know, and you know, if any network execs are listening right now, uh, two things here: first, pick up it's not that bad and turn it into a TV show. Um, we're available and B pick up, you know, the Stephanie Plum series and turn it into a show. Trust me when I say you'll really thank me for the Stephanie Plum series and we'll really thank you for picking us up as a TV show. But, but anyways, um, Daniel Sunjata who played Ranger. Now, when we were watching this and you, you had kind of told me that your envisionment of Ranger was Dwayne Johnson. The Rock. The Rock. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I was very pleasantly surprised. Because that's a lofty goal to sit there and say, all right, I want The Rock, and I got Daniel Sunjata. But if you're saying that that he pleasantly surprised you, well, then maybe The Rock needs to up his his game to Daniel Sunjata levels here. (laughs) I just think he, he was, he was, visually perfect he played it well um yeah the the character of ranger um in the book series is so pivotal to stephanie's success um so was morelli uh arguably however um ranger i i love that they um they really focused on him in the books. He's kind of like, um, 
he comes and goes, but he's a very not often mentioned character. He, like he's, he comes across to me like Harvey Keitel's The Wolf at a Pulp Fiction, where if you got a problem, you'll he'll solve it. Now check out the beat while the DJ revolves it. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, I just went there. I went there and I'm sorry. I'm and as I'm saying it, I'm even sorry I said it myself. You know, I approve. I'm I, a fan. I apologize to all the <laughs> listeners right now. I, I just can't believe I, I vanilla iced Daniel Sunzada's Ranger while talking about Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. I, 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 I'm going to go sit in the corner after this and think about what I've done. That's a real mashup of, uh, of worlds there. I, 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 but yeah, here we are. <laughs> but it, it it is very much that 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 fix it character that that guy that you call in to to solve the issue, not necessarily to MacGyver it, but I I also think as far as a casting aside goes, if you were to put someone like The Rock into this role, it becomes a Rock movie, and that's maybe not a good thing because it's Stephanie Plum's show. It should be Stephanie Plum's show. And I think it's actually smart casting to put someone in like a Daniel Sojata who's not necessarily going to outshine Katherine Heigl, but who's going to bring a really good performance in order to be able to elevate everyone else. Agreed. Completely agreed. One of the um, very, you know, not necessarily a minor character, I'm sure, as far as the book series goes, but at least minor enough in the grand scheme of... Um, the movie itself, and it's you know, not to say that you know the the actors, but but Patrick Fischler, who played Vinnie Plum, it's it's a smaller role as far as the movie goes, but this was another one of those things where it's like this is pitch perfect casting, you know, for what again I'm watching this as a someone who's never read a Jan Ivanovich book, you know, we we got most of them. You know, if Jan Ivanovich wants to send us the rest of the book, you know, we're, we're good with that. We'll send you a list. But, you know, I've never read any of her books, but this guy not only feels like he, should, he would be related to 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 Vinny, or I'm sorry, to, uh, to Stephanie Plum, but there's more to Vinny, I think, and it, it, it will lead into my next point in that Anne Reader, who played Connie, you know, the, 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 the secretary, again, loved her, thought she was great, but there was something about her in that it felt like she ran the place. 100%. Right? She's the one, you know, doling out the bounties and really making sure that, you know, the operational side of, you know, of the skip tracing works and Vinny basically defers to her and it makes sense then that Vinny would, you know, basically send his, you know, completely out of her league Stephanie Plum out to do skip tracing and Connie's trying to like you know keep everything afloat and the, 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 so the two of them Patrick Fischler and Ann Reader I think chef's kiss casting of those two roles oh my god uh, absolutely like um as soon as I saw uh Ann Reader on the screen like the first line of dialogue out of her mouth I was like that's perfect she's perfect that there's no other that's your Connie yes like she I mean she was she was absolutely brilliant as Connie and you're absolutely right that in the book series um 
the dynamic between Connie and Vinny, um, 100%. She, she runs the show, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and yeah, it was it was absolutely perfect. Both of those actors just absolutely nailed it. Mm-hmm. They nailed their parts. I don't know what I think about John Leguizamo in this as Jimmy Alpha because and I, again, I we I mentioned it earlier with The Rock, right? If you put Dwayne Johnson in as Ranger, it becomes a, a you know it becomes a Dwayne Johnson film. But John Leguizamo. Right. It's almost like you have this character and then you have this vision of who that character should be. And it's usually someone like John Leguizamo. And then you just basically call him up. Did it feel typecast for what John Leguizamo normally pulls in? My God, no. Actually, really? Yeah. For myself, the minute that you had mentioned that he's in this movie, I I thought, okay, you know, he's really going to play on the comedy. Mm-hmm. But his delivery of the character itself, um, no, I found he was really, um, A, you didn't see it, it, it coming. Like, you just had no idea that he was, um, you know, definitely the one. Spoiler but, alert. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I think the thing with John Leguizamo. He was running the show. I think, I think the thing with John Leguizamo is that, you know, for all, you know, the roles you could point to John Leguizamo was like, well, that's just John Leguizamo basically playing the same character over and over again. I kind of wished that he brought maybe a bit more, a bit more of the dark, you know, not necessarily the darker side of that character, but a bit more, you know, anger or at least this threatening level to this role. And we know he can do it. Because of Summer of Sam. Summer of Sam, it was this really, really good movie with, uh, it was him and it was Mira Sorvino. And, you know, there's a lot of depth to his character in Summer of Sam. I just think Jimmy Alpha kind of came across as a, and again, this is just me, a two-dimensional character. You know, I mean, if would you, now that, now that we were saying like it came as a surprise to you, would you, in hindsight, recast Jimmy Alpha? I don't think so. I, I, I love how he played it. I think that um, in his, you know, his monologue before his untimely demise um, was pretty much on point. I, I think that uh, he really was supposed to be a good guy. And, and, and the cool thing about the quote-unquote finger quotes bad guys in this movie is that they really are just you know guys running a fight club or sopranos um, cast-offs yeah you know what i don't think they're really hardened criminals um which is kind of the beauty of of this story series is that um yeah stephanie's she's working for a bail bondsman so she's bringing in um bounties on really these guys are just everyday guys who uh skipped a a court appearance you know could have forgotten maybe they were drunk that day we don't know but the point is that they missed their court appearance and now they have a bond um a bounty they have they have a bounty on their head Mm -hmm. so 
she has to bring them in. And I think one of the things, too, is that, you know, again, we mentioned that it's set in Jersey. And we talked about Jersey Shore, you know, regrettably talked about Jersey Shore. But, you know, we it also means we have to bring up The Sopranos. Because in The Sopranos, of course, you have, like, you know, a very mafia-based, you know, like, these are bad people doing bad things, mm-hmm. you know. And you take a look at, you know, and, and this is going off of what you have said about the Stephanie Plum series, is that these aren't necessarily bad people doing bad things. These are just idiots who didn't show up at court, yep. right? Not necessarily bad people, you know. And so, you know, John Leguizamo can do comedy. We know this. He can also do dark. We know this. And he I was get, in the middle. Yeah. He was really in the middle. And but, I think he was kind of struggling with that. And again... Um, he was kind of the underdog, like, mm. um, you know, like I, I, I didn't see it coming, even though I should have known the character. Um, but you know, I think he played it well. I really do. And I love that he wasn't over the top. Um, I mean, this movie itself could quite easily have gone off the rails in the comedy and they mm-hmm. didn't. And I, I like that. I like that it had that, it, it was, it was dramatic and it was sexy at times. The, the, like the on and off again, cat and mouse chase with, with Stephanie and, and Joe, it was like, it was exactly what it needed to be. And it wasn't over the top. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Now, as we sat down to watch this film, one of the first things you said is, oh, I hope they have Grandma in this. Oh, Grandma Mazur. And, of course, Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. Who's an absolute gem of an actress. She wasn't who I pictured, though. Reading the books, reading the books, in my mind, all I could picture is Estelle Getty. <laughs> and I do, you know... Rest in peace, Estelle. I, I love her. I love... Um, Picture it. Joycey. Yeah. 2012. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, she really, I, I think, you know, I, I think she did really well. I, I, I think it was a very um, diluted version of Grandma Mauser because in the books... I think they again. I think they diluted the um, the the character, and I'm not quite sure why. I I think it's one of those things where you have, you know, by the time this movie comes out, you have 18 books in the series. You know, 19 of course being released in 2012, but the movie came out very early 2012. So <laughs> 18 books for sure on the shelf. So you have you know the the Stephanie Plumiverse you know, very well established. And, you know, as with any series, you know, you get invested into the side characters and the supporting characters and and, and the world of different people in the lives of the main characters. And when they come onto the screen, you, you know, you know them, you want more of them, but in an hour and a half, you're not going to get that because... You know, you have to focus on the main character as much as you may or may not love, you know, the side characters in the series. So it's hard. You know, you jump in with both feet into a series like this and you have to give 
enough backstory so you kind of get the, the 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 feel for who Stephanie Plum is, but you can't spend too much time on it. Otherwise, you're going to have a three-hour Zack Snyder film, and it's just not going to do as well even considering how well it did already at the box office. Mm -hmm. Again, the books are quick reads. um, And being such a fan of the series, um, I I can say that, you know, Debbie Reynolds did an amazing job. Okay, no disrespect. um, But I, I think... In the role of Grandma Mazur, and I was really looking, uh, you know, yeah. you know, as soon as the movie started, you know, f- first credits you're, rolled. But your butt hit the chair. I'm like, where's Grandma? I'm like, <laughs> where's, oh, did, I hope Grandma's in this. Um, so I think that either a Joan Rivers or a Betty White could have mm. really played but to the what same, I expected. But to the same token the as well, and I think what Debbie Reynolds, you know, really brought to her roles is that she never, ever, ever overstaged where the focus was going. She ha- she always had this great ability to, you know, kind of see the whole she she saw the forest and not just the trees. You know, so with a Betty White you almost get a Dwayne Johnson feel in that it kind of it would upstage the scene. But now that I've said that, now I want a Dwayne Johnson and Betty White film. Yes, a hundred percent. Stop or my mom will shoot two, starring Dwayne Johnson and Betty White. Oh God, that would be amazing, right? It needs to happen. Absolutely, or even just remake the old one because the old one had Stallone and Estelle Getty. Mm-hmm. Now I want Dwayne Johnson. And Betty White in either a remake or a sequel of Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. I am I am going to blast this out <laughs> so we can manifest this into reality. I, I am literally going to tag Dwayne Johnson on this podcast. <laughs> Twitterverse, make it happen. Make it so. Let's put this out there, okay? Dear Dwayne. Hi, this is the It's Not That Bad podcast. You are a talented actor. You've been able to do many things, but what you haven't been able to do is to bring back to life a movie that may be slightly overlooked, but still golden in nature. You see, you, you have the ability to create Stop or my mom will shoot too. With Estelle Getty's Golden Girls co-star, Betty White. This needs to happen. We need Dwayne Johnson and Betty White on screen together. Put it together. Make it happen. Put it on Netflix. I'm cool with Netflix. That'd be great. Trust me, the world will thank you. And then you can thank me afterwards. So that is my, you know, that that is my request of Jane, of Dwayne Johnson. If I can manifest anything into this world, it's Dwayne Johnson and Betty White in a movie together. Totally fine with it being stopped or my mom will shoot. Also, I want to see him as Ranger in the Netflix series. Nah, you can't take that from Daniel. He did such a good job. <laughs> he did. He did. A did. Great job. He did. 
But one of the things that, and we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that, you know, it, it felt like it would have been better as a series. But I have to ask, right? Because, again, I jumped into this film knowing Jack and Squat about this about the series, except for the fact that there's a girl named Stephanie Plum and there's a whole lot of books about her. Um, the movie at times to me felt like it took for granted that you were already invested into the series, right? There was no, you know, there's no gentle prodding into this. You, you're pretty much like, you know, crane lifted and dropped right into the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. So for me... It took a little bit of getting used to and kind of figuring out on the fly who is who. You went into this fan of the series. Did you need more backstory of of where we were in Stephanie Plum's world or were you fine with how you jumped in? It's That's a great point because I recognize and I realize that the way the movie was produced, again, I started out by saying the book is always better because there's a lot of backstory and a lot of character building that needed to be done. Um, I think the movie tried and did what it could in the hour and 34 minutes that it had, but I wanted to see more. And I think, I, to your point, I, I think, yeah, it, it does a disservice to anyone who hasn't read the book series to just watch the movie on its own as a standalone mm-hmm. because there is a lot missing. And even with the character, uh, how Catherine Heigl played Stephanie Plum at the beginning, it was almost, it took her about a half an hour into the movie to warm up into the character. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was a lot going on and the film felt a little rushed. But again, you know, you're trying to put, I guess, an entire book into one hour and a half movie of which you've already said that you know there's a lot in there Uh, again further lending itself better to a series or at least expanding maybe maybe that's the series you expand from the books rather than try to cram the books into a series you know just expand more of the the stephanie plum storyline but it did feel a tad rushed so you know did they cover the book well enough in the movie for you yeah i i really feel that they did mm-hmm. i feel that and full disclosure i watched it a second time after our first watch mm-hmm. um and i found the more that i watched it and the more that i you know slept on it and and stepped away and kind of really digested what they did with um, the available time that they had. Right. Um, Again, I really feel that it could have quite easily been a two-hour movie. But they did a good job to just give enough and then wrap it up nicely. Mm -hmm. And I think they did really well. I, I do have to ask because obviously with any book, you know, if you take a look at how long it would take you to actually read a book, you know, you know, cover, you know, cover to cover, two hundred and eighty-six pages. Two hundred eighty-six pages. If you sat down and did nothing all day, you could probably finish it. It may take you a day and a half, right? Day and a half is too long for a movie. So of course, parts of the book are going to get left out. Was there anything 
out of the book that was missed and definitely should not have been? Again, I would have read one for the money possibly 18 years ago, mm-hmm. if not. Yeah. Um, but it was a, it's still a faithful adaptation. It, it, it was, it was absolutely perfect. It served um, the character well um, with, you know, with what they presented. I think they did a great job to um, at least introduce the dynamic mm-hmm. of the characters and they they did amazing introducing the the key players i i did like the score of the film i felt i felt like it kind of added to that you know again episodic type you know you know crime of the week or you know again like you could hear hints of what bones could be and De- deborah lurie was the composer for that and you know she's done a lot you know she's done a lot of good work she you know she did drop dead sexy you know she t- you know, did the unimaginable and composed music for the remake of footloose which that's going to be a daunting task and uh most recently i think or one of the more recent things was the tv series the astronauts wives club you know it didn't overswell it didn't take away it it accented nicely you know and it, it gave it that you know that that comedic action type feel i i think that that went across well but but we've gotten to the point now of the show so i have to ask you carrie who is your mvp of one for the money this is going to come out of left field but i gotta go with sherry shepherd as lula love her oh my god um, again, I had mentioned earlier about Connie, so I don't need to circle back to that mm-hmm. too much. But oh, Sherry, you you absolutely personified mm-hmm. Lula's character beautifully, and you played it well. And funny side note that I've actually um, listened to an audiobook of, and I can't even remember which one, I think it was maybe 23 um, in the book series. And the portrayal or the audiobook acting of Lula's character was awful. It was no, no disrespect. I'm not going to name any names. I don't know who the voice actor was. <laughs> not going to name names because I don't know them. Because <laughs> I'm sorry, you're fired. Um, Sherry Shepard should have um, should have been portraying Lula mm-hmm. always and forever. She, you, you did an amazing job. It was perfect. Um, yeah, that's my MVP. That's the that's the one thing I'll gi- I'll give Sherry Shepard. And, and again, loved her in Thirty Rock. Thought mm-hmm. she was brilliant in Thirty Rock, and and she's brilliant here as well. Mm-hmm. You know, here you have a character, and then again, this is coming from the guy who never read the book, right? So I don't know Lula's you know story. I don't know if she was you know clearly she was portrayed fairly well, mm-hmm. you know. But here you have a character, and you know let, let's let's call it like it is. She's out on the streets. Right. She's working the streets and you could have had this, you know, very jaded, very, you know, like, you know, what's in it for me kind of thing. But no, Lula's character has a lot of heart. She's she's doing mm-hmm. her best. And I, and I think the thing that Sherry brought to that role is that I think her Lula saw in Catherine Heigl's Stephanie 
two people that are doing their best given the crap cards that they're dealt with, you know, and they're going to help each other rather than make things more difficult for either of them to kind of get by in life. And that's the thing that, that that's, that's the heart that was kind of brought, you know, by Sherry Shepard to this role. I, compl- mm-hmm. I, I, I don't hate that MVP pick at all. And they, the way they wrapped it up nicely um, at the end of the movie, having her, um, now working for the the bail bonds mm-hmm. for for Vinny. She works for Vinny now at the end of the movie, and that is true to the story. Um, taking it further, believe it or not, but Lula and Stephanie partner up, and Lula, yeah, yeah, and just their misadventures, like oh, it, I, see, it, this needs it to goes happen tenfold. Now. Yeah, dear Dwayne Johnson. You have a lot of money, like a lot of money. And if you're looking for properties to help flourish, we now need, once you're done, please do the, you know, the, the Dwayne Johnson, Betty White film first. But once you're done with that, and you're looking for further projects to develop, call up Katherine Heigl, call up Sherry Shepard, put them together, let them run wild. This series needs to happen. This is your deep voice of future future endeavors you're welcome Dwayne trust me when I say people will thank you for making this then you'll thank us it will be all good I'm going to um, I'm going to pull a Gomez from Playlist Wars here also shout out to Brian and Gomez from Playlist Wars if you, if you hadn't had a chance to listen to their show by all means um, listen to their show um, I'm going to change my MVP pick whoa <laughs> I'm going to. You I, didn't even tell us what your first I, pick I, was. I, well, I'm, I'm going to say I had Daniel Sanjata as as my original MVP pick, but, as but he's we, not the Rock. But but he's not the Rock. But as we were talking about the rest of the cast, it really kind of stuck out to me that I, we need to go back to the bail bond shop, and Ann Reader is my MVP, Connie, because of just the the. There's something to be said about how well a side or a secondary character helps develop and helps set the tone for the main characters. And I don't think Katherine Heigl's Stephanie Plum gets the confidence she needs if she doesn't know already that her cousin, Vinny, also my cousin Vinny, um, but her cousin Vinny, you know, defers enough to Connie that she can rely on Connie to be able to 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 keep her working and keep her on the right side of what she's got to do there is there's a strength in her Connie there there's there's a, an assuredness in her Connie and you know what I would just basically you know again if you got a series going and she's the touch point for the the adventure that's going to happen you know you know if admittedly yes you know full disclosure here you know both carrie and i would sit down and watch dog the bounty hunter right and and beth is kind of that connie in that in that she was very much running the business in the show and then dog would just kind of run and you know go catch bounties kind of thing but connie really has you know 
a very commanding presence about her in that role that, you know, it could have just been a throwaway role, but it wasn't. Oh, no. And that's... She was pivotal. Yeah. And that's really thanks to Anne Reeder. So, to me, I'm, 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 I'm calling the audible and Anne Reeder is my MVP of one for the money. So now that we've kind of gone through all of this, okay, I'm going to let you retomato this film here. Okay. It's not a hundred percent. We know it's not a hundred percent, but I don't think it's 2%. So if you had to retomato this, what do you give it? I agree with the audience. I would put it at, was it 43 or 48? Uh, it was. It's in the 40s. Yeah, it's in the 40s. It was 42%. 42? 42. I'd give it even higher. Really? I would go 48. I would go 48. Um, again, I think they did an amazing job with the story franchise. Mm-hmm. I, just a side note, and as much as I absolutely love the book, love the the film. I love everything about Stephanie Plum and her misadventures. I love her dynamic with Joe Morelli and Ranger. Yes, I said it. <laughs> Their little setup there that they've got. Right. Um, Connie being absolutely brilliant and um, so con- not not controlling. So in control of the situation and commanding the scene. Like she is one hell of a tough cookie and I love her. And I think that, you know, it was played beautifully. Lula being, again, the heart of gold, um, having, you know, that street smarts and in in the book, um, you know, uh, she's also a very tough lady. And that was portrayed very well, I think, um, in, in the scene where, she was she was a, a victim of you know of the the she basically was put as a victim to get Stephanie's attention right so she was kind of really pivotal in that in that scene um I do have to question though and the movie you know just kind of ran with it the dynamic between the bounty hunters and the police department I I'm not sure how these things work, but I am pretty positive that in reality, (laughs) in the really real world, bounty hunters don't have that, um, that connection and that support and that collaboration with the police department. I don't think that was based in reality, but you know what? For the storyline, it worked. And um, as I said, in future books and through the storyline, Stephanie's connection to the police department was always through Joe Morelli. Mm -hmm. In the first book, again, they had that cat and mouse love hate um, dynamic. And I I just I'm left questioning how. Stephanie had that in with the police department, especially without Joe. It, it it did seem kind of random, but to the same token as well. And it wasn't flushed out well. No, no. But to the same token as well, maybe it's just the way it was shot. And I, I know it wasn't shot in Jersey. They shot a lot of it in Pittsburgh. Um, 
in that it it could very well be the fact that it felt like it was set in a, like a almost a smaller suburb of Jersey. So if that's Trenton. in Trenton, so I mean, if that uh, I don't know Trenton that well, um, but I you know I don't know if it's a bigger city or whatnot. But I wonder if it's one of those communities that when you're there, kind of everybody knows everybody, kind of thing. And that would kind of make sense. But again, you're right; that wasn't flushed out. And now that I'm thinking about the police in that movie. Um, Trenton must have the worst cops there because they just seem really kind of bumbling and not necessarily keystone, but definitely clueless. Um, I do have to uh, give a, a shout out here to our good friend, Anthony Monkey Noodles on Twitter, um, who said, I saw that movie a long while back. I thought it was pretty good. Got me interested to read the novel series. Naturally, the book is better, but I did find the movie fun and entertaining. Um, is the book better? Yes. Is, is the book always better? All 28 of them. I mean, like I said, start with one, read each and every one. And really, they're quick reads. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I mentioned, 286 pages of the first book. Um, you know, definitely it's worth the time invested. And there is just so much more. There's so much depth and so much like so much to love about Stephanie Plum and how she bumbles her way um, through these, these bonds, these bail bonds. And she always finds herself in trouble. And, you know, either it's Ranger or Joe that, you know, is always there to pull her out of trouble and, you know, clean up her messes. And, and, and I just have to give a nod at they, it was almost it was almost random how they had the scene of the other competing bail bondsman who was um, on the hunt for Joe Morelli. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, yeah, I'm going to totally, you know, spoil the scene, but he steals Stephanie's keys of a car that she had stolen previously. And the minute that he gets into her the, the, the Jeep or whatever it was, whatever vehicle, mm-hmm. it SUV, explodes. Yeah. Um, so... Again, these things just keep happening to Stephanie and she skirts by death and, you know, disaster so many times in in any given story. Any one of the books has these wonderful little twists and turns. And in the movie, I found that it, again, it needed to be flushed out more. It needed more time, more of a setup. Mm-hmm. Um you know, more information was needed because it was almost kind of like, well, who is this and why is this happening now? But it is pivotal to the story. So do yourself a favor, everybody pick up the book um, and read the whole series, you know, one after another. Um, And the thing is, the nice thing is that you can literally pick up, you know, if you wanted to pick up 18, right? Each one is cleverly named, by the way. But if you pick up any one of the books, they can be standalone. You don't have to read one and then the other mm-hmm. because each one of them is a story of itself. So I, I, I do wonder, because we did talk about the fact that it was an hour and a half film. Mm-hmm. Given three hours, could you tell the story of one book in three hours? I think they did it fairly succinctly in the hour and a half. I think three would be too long. 
I and I ask this it's because it's not Star Wars here. Like, no, I know it's not Star Wars, but I'm not saying it's a three hour long movie. Mm. But we know that American and North American based series are, you know, they usually tend to run about twenty episodes or so. Across the pond, over the UK, you can get away with a series that lasts three, four episodes. So I'm just wondering because again, to me, you know, the the uninitiated you know, the non-book reading, you know, movie going public, the movie felt rushed and there was a lot going on. But I wonder if it's one of those situations where in a in a limited series, right? Season one, three episodes, maybe four if you need it, you know, you got one for the money. Season two, three episodes, you got two for the dough. Season three, and so on and so forth. Is that maybe the best treatment for this? Or would you just rather see the further adventures of Stephanie Plum, maybe not taken from the book, but continuing on a la Karen Sisko? Mm. I think movie plot line, one for the money, you know, did a great job in the hour and a half. I think for a TV series, um, and half an hour would not be near enough mm-hmm. um, to even you know touch the surface. I mean, they they could do Stephanie Plum, you know, versus this one Bond, right? And and do that and accomplish that in a half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as an hour series, and it doesn't always have to be true to the book, I think that there's a lot of liberties that they could take, and especially if Janet Ivanovich were on board with... See, the, Janet Ivanovich would have to be involved in the, in the script writing, in mm-hmm. the screenplay. I think that... Her style of writing is so very funny and it's so very, um, again, the misadventures and the the twists and turns that the plot takes in the books. Um, it would be, you know, it, it would be a challenge and it would be really hard for a writing team to to do it perfectly. So better better to go to the source. Absolutely. Than let than let and there were three different, you know, screenplay writers on this. So I wonder I wa- how involved Janet Ivanovich that, was. That's a very good question, the fact that because that's that's gotta be tough, right? And and I know that's why Clive Custer was really kind of poo-pooing on movies like Sahara and Raised the Titanic when they were released, you know, based on his books and they weren't to his vision of them. Um, you know, Janet was very, very happy with how One for the Money came out. She was very happy with Katherine Heigl as um, as Stephanie Plum. So clearly the groundwork is set, and I think it's definitely something that could be flushed out. Um, for those of you who've been listening to this now and they're like, you know what, I'm going to give this movie a shot, uh, please do. It's actually, it's actually, it's not that bad, um, but it's on Amazon Prime, so you can you can watch it there. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I'm I'm so happy we got the chance to watch this and and talk about, you know, arguably one of your favorite book series of all times. And oh my gosh, thank you, Jay, for telling me that it exists. I had 
absolutely no idea. And now that I've seen it, first of all, I hang my head in shame for not being more aware that this was a thing. How dare you? Um, but I am so my my life is enriched now that I have watched this movie. And yeah, you know what? It uh, it is so true to the it's true to the storyline. It's true to the character. And mm. yeah, the critics are wrong. Pick up a book. The critics are always wrong. Let's just be honest. Two percent. Come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, Those no, two critics that... Yeah, no, 2% is what you put in your coffee, okay? Right. That's not what you give to a movie like this. Carrie, thank you so much for this. And to the listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, here's the deal. If you think there is a movie that is unfairly maligned or just crappy enough that there's no way that we could watch it and find anything good about it, well, we challenge you. We challenge you, fair listeners. So find us on Twitter, at NotThatBadCast. Let us know. Put a movie out there. Manifest that movie into reality, and we will watch it. Dwayne Johnson, manifest your own movie. You know. Um, but hit us up. Toss a movie out. We'll watch it. We'll dissect it. And you know what? We're not going to regret our life choices. We're going to love every single bit of it because there are A grades and B movies. This has been... It's not that bad. I'm your host, Jason Carey. Thank you so much. Until next time, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.